Uh, we are in our final week of Stories from the Seats, and uh, Stuart Fluent is going to come and share his story uh, with us this morning. I'm going to invite Stuart up here, and as he makes his way uh, to the stage, I just want to remind you of why we do this series. Um, we really believe that when uh, people share their stories of how God has been at work in their lives, it gives us a chance to remember and celebrate and recognize how God is still alive and active and present in others' lives, and it gives us a chance to think about how he's active and present in our own lives and look for his work that way. Um, it also, we believe when we provide a safe place for people to share their stories and we get to hear their struggles and their victories and their celebrations, God uses all of that to encourage us and to inspire us as we grow in our faith. And finally, we just believe it's biblical. Uh, John tells us in Revelation that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, but also by the sharing of our testimonies. And so, Stuart has come this morning to share his story of faith and his story of God at work. And I know you're going to be encouraged by that before you share. Can I pray for you? Yes, that'd be great. Father, I want to thank you so much for uh, this opportunity for us to take a look at how you've been at work uh, in Stuart's life. Um, Lord, we just see your sovereign hand reaching in from a very early age. And, uh, and then we just see you staying with him through, um, through some uh, very challenging situations and, um, and constantly reaching out to him so that he could come to know you. So open our hearts and minds to be able to hear how you want to speak to each of us uh, collectively and individually through Stuart's story. Uh, we thank you for this morning, for a place to gather and worship and hear a good word from you. Uh, we thank you for those who are leading us in worship. And I thank you for Jay Morales, who has been so faithful in leading us in worship. And, and he graduates, and you've been faithful to him. And continue to guide him and direct his steps as he moves into his future. Um, open us up to what you want to share now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you. Good morning. My story started on a farm outside of the small town of Ponca, Nebraska. That's where I was born in 1945 to Floyd and Mildred Fluent. I had a brother that was three years older and another brother eight years older. That's me in the back of the truck. They loaded me. (laughs) When I was about two and a half, my family moved about 30 miles to another farm between Hardington and Coleridge in Nebraska. This area was called the Pearl Creek neighborhood. It was home to our family as the three of us boys grew up. Within a few years, I began to learn that these neighbors were about as close to family as you could get without being blood relatives. They had neighborhood card parties and picnics. They made and decorated floats for parades and celebrations in nearby towns. And they worked together in the fall to cut and haul silage to fill the silos. But they also cried together like when the 18-year-old neighbor boy was killed while driving a gravel truck, or when two of another neighbor's children got polio and one of them had to live in an iron lung for a period of time. They also gathered at times to harvest crops in the fall of the year if one of the neighbors couldn't, like when Dad hurt his back lifting a piece of equipment. All the neighbors brought their own tractors, corn pickers, wagons, and whatever else. For a couple of days, the farm looked like an anthill. The wives brought in the noon meal and fed the whole crew. Everyone seemed to be upbeat and enjoying each other, even though they weren't getting their own work done. A bad situation turned into a good situation. When things were different and someone else needed help, 
My mom and dad were just as active in helping in the neighborhood as any of them. My mom was also active in the church we attended. She was a Sunday school teacher, ladies' aid member, etc., etc. Looking back, it is obvious that she was the spiritual leader of our family. She made sure we were in church and Sunday school as much as possible. We also had evening devotions and bedtime prayers on a regular basis when I was young. I was still in grade school when Mom started having medical problems. After many doctor visits here and there and with the passage of time and a trip to the Mayo Clinic, they finally determined that she had multiple sclerosis, MS for short. That's when Dad told us kids she may only have a year to live. I knew she wasn't really well, but I really wasn't ready for this. I was stunned and didn't really know how to react, so I didn't. In those days, there wasn't much of any treatment available for MS. I don't remember talking about it, how long she might live. We didn't discuss feelings and such. My oldest brother was in the Army at the time, and my next older brother was in high school. I was about 11 or 12. As Mom got worse, it was up to my brother and me to take care of the housework. I know we both wanted to be helpful, but housework just really wasn't on our radar. (laughs) At times, we argued about whose turn it was and who was going to do what. Weeks turned into months, months into a year, and then two years. When Dad needed help with the farm work, my brother was much more qualified to do that. He was older, he was bigger, and he'd been doing field work for quite a few years. But he was also about to graduate from high school and go on to tech school. I remember that Dad always wanted a daughter, and about that time I was thinking it really would have been okay to have had a sister. (laughs) But that wasn't the case. So I wound up in the house a lot of the time. I guess you could say I became the girl of the family. I could cook, I could bake bread, cookies, cakes, and pies. I could clean the house, wash clothes, iron clothes. I could shampoo and pin up mother's hair. I wrote letters and postcards for her while she dictated what to write. Some of the time, I even helped dad. My brother helped in the house too until he finished high school and then he was gone. The neighbor ladies were great though. They continued to help whenever they could. Then there was the traveling salesman and his wife. I don't remember for sure sure what they were selling, but I do remember what they were like. They were very kind, what I would now call Christ-like. He took the time to talk to me and find out that we shared a common interest in rock collecting. When they understood our situation there on the farm, they said they would come back. When they did, she brought her old portable electric sewing machine with her to do some sewing and patching for us, and he made a display of several collectible rock types under a magnifying glass for me. I was not only impressed with the rock display, but also with their caring and sharing of love. I think the thing I learned from all of this and what really stuck with me was, if you see someone in need, 
whether you're a neighbor or a stranger, you help them. Pretty simple. Mom battled the MS for about four or five years, <clears throat> but on Thanksgiving Day of 1961, the MS finally won. It was another one of those times the neighbors gathered to cry, this time with us. But at the time, I couldn't cry. I'd lived for years knowing that this would be coming. The grief and the pain were there, but the tears weren't. Nothing felt right, but that's the way it was. <clears throat> After the funeral with our family sitting in the funeral room, I looked back at the door where the rest of the people were coming out of the church, and there was Barbara. A really warm feeling just washed over me when I saw her standing there. I had first met Barbara just before our freshman year of high school. She was a town school kid, and I was a country school kid. Her brother and my brother were friends, and she was a tag-along one day when her brother came over to our place. We became good friends and began dating when I finally turned 16 and got my driver's license, only a month or two before the funeral. I didn't know if she would come to the funeral or not, but I was really glad to see her. The rest of high school went quite well. Barbara and I kept dating each other. In my senior year, when college came into view, my neighbor slash high school English teacher took me under her wing and made sure I got all the paperwork filled out. Boy, I talk about a godsend. She was. I didn't have much self-confidence, and I really needed her in my corner. I was a very small fish, and my pond was about to get huge. Our high school graduating class was all of 24 kids, and the freshman class at the University of Nebraska that year was about 3,300 students. It was like five times bigger than our whole town. <laughs> to say that I was somewhat overwhelmed is a bit of an understatement. In the application forms I filled out, I had to declare a major. So I chose it the only way I knew how. I liked math and science, but I knew I didn't want to teach. Engineering sounded like a good way to apply the math and the science. So that got me to the next step. What kind of engineering? I liked to tinker with mechanical stuff, and I knew little to nothing about electrical things. So mechanical engineer it was. Little did I know what was in front of me. <clears throat> that first year was really tough. The advanced math that I had as a senior in high school did not prepare me for going straight into college calculus. I think my first exam grade was just over 30. The fear I felt going from high school to college was nothing compared to what I felt after that exam. Part of that fear was not wanting to let my dad down. He was so determined I should go to college. So here I was, and I didn't have plan B. You've heard the phrase, burning the midnight oil? Well, that's exactly what I did. Unfortunately, things got better. <clears throat> As the semesters and years went on, I made connections with some of the professors and administrators who became very helpful 
and supportive during my college years. And by the way, speaking of being supportive, Barbara stood by me through it all. Sometimes from a distance when she was working or going to college elsewhere, and finally closer when she came to Lincoln to work and stayed with her friend and a couple of other girls in a house near Ag Campus. Another year of dating, and we decided to get married before the start of my senior year. She was working for a research professor in the engineering college, and I was juggling classwork, student activities, and job interviewing. Time flew by, and soon we were on our way to a new job and new home in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Suddenly, those same feelings of little self-confidence and being a small fish in a very big pond all came back again. And by the way, that interviewing that I was doing my senior year, well, Barbara didn't get to go along. So she had never seen New Mexico before. And as we drove into Santa Fe to stay the night, she was homesick. Even before we got to Albuquerque. (laughs) And I was scared again. I was going to work for a government weapons research laboratory with more than 5,000 employees. I would also be taking graduate classes at the University of New Mexico half-time for two years, mostly in math and nuclear physics. It was another period of time with major changes for both of us. Neighborhoods weren't the same. Professors weren't the same. And there were more, more PhDs in the lab than you could believe. All the top-notch schools were represented there, including MIT and a whole bunch of others. Did I mention I was scared? It helped when we got connected with a nearby church. Although it was much larger than anything we had experienced before, the minister's wife was actually from our hometown. As they And they were married in the same little church where Barbara and I were married back in Coleridge, Nebraska. Finally, we found someone like my old neighbors who knew how to reach out and care. We became active in the church. I was teaching in seventh grade religion classes, but I really wanted to learn more about the Bible, about Christianity. I wanted to be better qualified. However, What I had learned at a very early age stuck with me. If you see someone that needs help, you help them. Very simple. After a couple of years, when I was finishing grad school, we decided it was time to start our family. Before our son was born, Barbara started having problems with the pregnancy. She was restricted to bed rest to the point that her doctor actually made house calls for her. Imagine that happening today. It would have been difficult for me to go on working had it not been for a couple of families. They were like the neighbors I grew up with. The lady across the street came over every day to bring in the mail and make sure I had left Barbara something for lunch. And then just to sit and be with her. Another friend also stopped by to spend time with Barbara while her own little girl took a nap in the other room. These two ladies were like angels. Things continued okay until about five weeks from the baby's due date. Without warning, our son decided enough was enough. He was born the morning after the doctor had made a house call, 
and had given us the assurance that if the baby were born right then, he would be all right. The doctor was right. Although our son was five weeks early, he seemed to be just fine. And he weighed in at just one ounce less than the doctor's estimate. What relief and joy. And long... But it wasn't long before Chad started having problems. Our pediatrician called it projectile vomiting. It was a critical symptom of a condition called congenital pyloric stenosis. Major surgery was required at the age of nine weeks to correct a narrowing of the opening where food would pass from his stomach into the first part of his small intestine. It was a difficult time, but we finally got past that hurdle and things went well. But I still carried a fear inside of me for several years that I never discussed with Barbara. We both knew there was a problem dealing with the blood supply to the baby during the birth process, and we also know it could cause brain damage in the baby. In some cases, it might not show up until much later. Obviously, I had not matured in my faith to the point where I was able to let go and let God. I knew I couldn't do anything about the outcome, but I still worried. But as he grew, it became clear that he was a perfectly healthy and active little boy. Thank you, God. About two years later, our daughter Lisa came along and made our family complete. She was only three weeks early and was just fine. By this time, we were both beginning to miss the lush green grass of the Midwest and other connections with our families. We felt it would be important for our children to be closer to their grandparents and cousins, so we started looking for a job. We found one in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and I put in my two-week notice at the lab. Within three weeks, we sold our and closed on our house in Albuquerque, had our household goods packed and moved on a moving van. We drove back to Cedar Falls, and I started my new job. Thankfully, everything fell into place. Do you think maybe it was a God thing? It really did feel like we were supposed to come here. And by the way, Remember the minister and his wife in Albuquerque that were married in the same little church as Barbara and me? I never told you his name. Some of you might know his family, or maybe even be part of his family. His name is Dale Knutson, and he grew up on his parents' farm near Dyke. So after we moved here, they stopped in to visit us when they came back to see his parents. Now... If by chance you're still thinking that my story and your story aren't part of God's story or part of his bigger picture, don't worry about it. You just haven't learned or you just haven't lived long enough yet. It was 45 years ago when we did all the necessary things that people do when they move. New house, new neighborhood, new church, new friends, new job. I guess I should mention, I was scared again. That new job came with new unknowns. It was a total change from my past experience, a little bit like night and day. 
I think this caused some changes inside me. I'd taken a pay cut to come back to the Midwest, and I was feeling the burden of providing financial security for my family. I did what most red-blooded American husbands did or would do. I took time away from my family and added it to my work week. Work. That was pretty much my emphasis for the next 35 years or so. Not that I didn't have a life outside of work. I did. I was still fairly active in the church, and we joined a small group Bible study, several actually, over the years. I still felt I wanted to learn more about the Bible. Of course, I still continued with helping people when I would see a need. Sometimes this became kind of a sore point for Barbara. Before cell phones became the norm, I would see someone with car trouble along the road, and I would feel the need to stop and help. I didn't think much about the potential security problem, but it bothered Barbara. The more I tried to help people, the more problems I seemed to create for her. I finally decided to take a class at church that would help me discover what gifts I may have or not have. I felt I needed to know this so I could put my time and effort in the right places. At the end of the class, I had my answer. You guessed it. Caring and serving. I think I was a victim of circumstances at the time of my youth. I must have been imprinted by my mother and the people in our neighborhood. I don't know if that's possible, but they certainly were good examples of caring and serving. It was either that or else God decided it when he put my DNA together. Either way, it seems to be a pretty big cornerstone in my life. At least now I had a good idea of why I feel the urge to help others when I see or sense their need. I'm still doing some things that concern Barbara, and we are still working that out day by day. And by the time, and by the way, she is still standing by me. This year will be anniversary number 51, and she's still the only girl I ever dated. At this point, I wish I could say that everything is under control, but I can't. There are still dark places in my heart where the Spirit is working or waiting on me to allow Him to start. Sometimes it involves stretching my limits on helping others. Sometimes it involves cleaning up my mind and heart regarding basic Christian values. Too many times I have judged others, only to find myself in similar situations at a later time. Then I realize I too am powerless to bring myself back from the brink of addiction of one kind or another. It is a very humbling feeling, yet reassuring that God's Spirit is there for us whenever we are ready to surrender. Sometimes I feel urgings from the Spirit to serve that seem so far beyond my capabilities. I just want to run the other direction, and I know Barmer wants me to as well. And I'm still scared, also known as lack of confidence and faith to surrender. And yet I know in my heart it is in exactly these places where Jesus is saying, Come, follow me. For example, <clears throat> four years ago, 
Brian and Teresa Carr asked me to become involved with a Jobs for Life class by mentoring one or more of the students. All went well during the eight weeks of class, but it was in the follow-up that I failed miserably. There were three guys I couldn't seem to mentor. I broke every guideline for mentoring, but it turns out I'm the one being mentored by Jesus to be a friend. And I'm still learning the depth of what it really means to be a friend. In fact, it is my life that has changed forever. So far, I've learned a lot about probation and parole officers, Waterloo police officers, the Black Hawk County Jail, and a couple of the state correctional facilities. As I look back, this is just the way God works in my life. There have been several aha moments over the years when I've asked Jesus to be part of my life, but more often I see God at work in my life through gradual and continuous on-the-job training. The saying, God is not finished with me yet, has always been meaningful to me, but more now so than ever before. There are at least three things that I've learned from God's on-job training. First of all, I don't know as much now as I once thought I did. Second, and maybe you've got this one figured out already, life is a mess. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or not, sooner or later our lives get messy. And third, when life does get messy and you can't see the next step, just stop. Take a breath. Close your eyes. Plug your ears. And then open your heart. Psalm 46, verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. And then from John, chapter 16, verse 33. I have told you these things so that In me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I know beyond a doubt Jesus is with us. You may not hear, come follow me, but God is present. God is a God of all ages, young and old. Jesus is there for us all. For you his voice may sound like, hey, I've been there. I've done that. I've got your back. Let's go. I'll get you through this. You can do it. We are not all the same. Each of us may hear him differently. But Jesus is always the same. He will always be there. Hebrews 13 verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That is something that we can depend on. In closing, I want to share a prayer derived from St. Richard's prayer. It really helps me with all of this. It summarizes how I want to finish my race. And it goes like this. Day by day, dear Lord, of you three things I pray. To see you more clearly, love you more dearly, 
follow you more nearly day by day. Amen. Some of you, I'm sure, really connected with Stuart's story. Some of you will have questions. You want to have a conversation maybe following uh, the service. Stuart's going to be around afterwards. I know I had one question after I first heard the story, and I was, do you still know how to make those cakes and pies? Um, he said he's not in that business anymore. So think of another question if you have one. And uh, I, I just love seeing in Stuart's story about God, that he's both this God who pursues his children relentlessly with his love and his grace and his perfect timing, and yet he also is a God who asks us to take steps of faith so that we can know him more. You just see that all over Stuart's story. So I want to pray for you, invite the band up, and uh, we'll close in worship. Father, I just uh, thank you so much for Stuart being able to share this, his story and how it encourages me, and I pray that it encourages everyone in this room as we do get a glimpse, Lord, of of how from the very beginning you just you put Stuart in this place where he could learn things about community and about serving that really um, spoke to the way you had wired him and the way you had created him. That he got that, that firm foundation in that that has served him throughout his life. And, and I thank you that in the times of crisis, in the times of deep grief, I just think about all of the people that you put in his place, put, put in, in his life with him, to help him through those difficult and challenging times. And, and when he was uh, afraid or fearful and he took that step of faith, you met him every time in that step of faith that he took. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for Stuart's faithfulness. And I pray that you'd help each of us, Lord. Um, maybe some of us haven't had this, uh, this, this foundation that Stuart has, and yet there's time that, that you want to build that foundation into our lives now. Maybe some of us have had it, and you're asking us to take the next step of faith. And, and maybe we know what that is, or maybe we need to take some time to hear what that is. But I pray that your spirit would speak to us and that we would have the obedience to step out in faith, just as Stuart did. It's in your name we pray. Amen.